um, Revelation chapter 3. This is a part of scripture called the letter to the seven churches. There's a guy named John. He's exiled on the island of Patmos by a guy named Domitian, who was the Roman Caesar at the time. And he's writing letter. He's writing a letter back to these seven churches that ends up becoming the book of Revelation. And so let me just, this is Revelation chapter 3. Um, verse 1. I want to open this up and ask ourselves to find our story in these people's story and ultimately ask what does the Lord want us to do to change our life. To the angel of the church in Sardis write this. These are the words of him who holds the seven spirits of God and the seven stars. These are the words of him who holds the seven spirits of God and the seven Stars. Now, let's just start right there. He's fixing to give some instructions to these people in Sardis, but I think it'll help us to understand what he's fixing to say, to understand a bit about Sardis. So first, politics. Sardis was ruled globally by a Caesar named Domitian. Domitian was a particular narcissist who thought he was the fullness of God incarnate. He wasn't just a man. He was the fullness of God in flesh. He instituted Olympic style games to his honor. He did crazy stuff. From 78 AD to 92 AD, he instituted a custom called the Mark of the Beast in the Agora in the marketplace outside of Ephesus. He was a particular crazy person. So the first part of this reference is, this is the testimony of him who holds the seven stars and the seven spirits of God. So so in Jewish thought, the, the person who holds the seven spirits of God was the Messiah, in this case, Jesus Christ, because he was the one that held the seven spirits of God, the compassionate, gracious, slow to anger, abounding in love and forgiveness God. The seven spirits of God was the spirit of the Lord will rest on him, the spirit of wisdom, counsel, knowledge, understanding, and the fear of the Lord. This was the seven spirits of God. So he's identifying this guy as Jesus. And then he goes, oh, by the way, and he holds the seven stars, which was an in-your-face confrontation to Domitian's claims of godness. Let me show you a coin from the day. This was legal tendered money in Domitian's day. This is a coin of Domitian. Um, so so in this, Domitian was such a narcissist. He made coins that presented him as the one sitting on top of the world, holding the seven stars in place. He didn't stop there. Here's the next coin. This is a coin from Domitian's rule where he equated himself. This is Domitian on the left. That's the head side of the coin. And on the tail side of the coin, that is the god Jupiter. He said he was filled with a male spirit god god, uh, of Jupiter and a female spirit goddess, the goddess Roma, the goddess of virtue. And so this guy was ruling the whole world with fear and oppression and horror and pain while claiming to to be God in flesh. This was Domitian. Now, Sardis was an important part of the Lydian Empire in Persia. This is where John's writing back to it. It was on the main road from Ephesus to the main parts of Asia Minor, thus making it an important center for buying and selling. It was built as a lower city and an upper city. If you study this out, there was a lower city of Sardis where the less rich people lived, although 
everybody in Sardis was rich. But then the really affluent, they had a city built on a flat cliff, 1,500 meters high. The lower city and the upper city. Now, when you could build a city on a flat cliff, 1,500 meters high, that makes you impenetrable. That makes you very difficult to attack. No one could ever attack you without being automatically covered from an elevated position. It was considered in its day the most fortified city in the entire world. This was Sardis. Now, the original king of Sardis, this was 700 or so years before, was a guy named Croesus. Now, Croesus is in the discussion for the richest man who's ever lived. Now, whether he was or not, who knows? But can we just all agree together, if you're even in that discussion, you are flipping rich. They, they made, they, they made uh, sayings about it. Hey, as rich as Croesus, things like this. So Croesus um, was the first king, and, and he was really, really inventive. He, he was the guy that invented uh, in the world to invent invent a way to master the art of spinning wool. Before Croesus, when you, when you look at movies or histories or whatever, um, before Croesus, that's where people were sort of barbarians and they're wearing whole animals. So they would kill an animal and then wear the whole animal skin. Croesus figured out, hang on a second, if we shear the sheep and then use a spinner to spin the wool into actual clothes, the sheep next year will grow more wool. We'll have more food to eat. This is more sustainable. It was amazing technology for that day. Croesus was a tech. Croesus was the Bill Gates of the day. He was he, he was the Steve Jobs of the day. He was also the first place to mint coin in such a way that standardized the amount of silver and gold in each coin. Before Croesus, you just sort of had to guess as to what a coin was worth. You'd have to get a weight out. Then you'd have to wonder, did they cheat? You know, there was all kinds of, Croesus said, there's no need for that. Here's what we could do, right? We can standardize the minting of coins by making it a standard measurement for the amount of gold and silver in each coin. And he mastered that. So the whole world started looking to Croesus to print their money. He was literally getting a cut off of every currency in the entire world. This guy was rich. Now, after that, this gets even better for Croesus. Croesus is having a really good day. After that, they discovered the largest deposit of gold ever found in the history of the world up to that time. Where? Underneath the upper city. Listen, when you have developed the technology to standardize minting of coins, and then subsequent to that, they find the largest deposit of gold ever recorded in the history of the world up to that time. Underneath your feet, you literally have a license to print money. This was Croesus. Croesus then built a huge army to protect the resources. That makes sense. If the largest deposit of gold ever recorded in the history of the world is underneath your feet, you've got to protect that. You've got to protect that. What do you do? What do you, how do you protect that? You build an army. You say, your job is to protect Sardis. Sardis. So Sardis was already sort of protected. 1,500 meters high on a flat Rock, but then Croesus built a 40-foot wall on top of the 1,500-meter cliff to further fortify it, and he put watchmen around the wall. This made it the most fortified city in the entire world. The problem was, is they kept getting attacked. For a fortified city, people got very, very focused on attacking Sardis. Why? Because they were so wealthy, so affluent. Now, let me just stop right here and let's connect to the story. This is a story about a group of people who live in a safe place and they have plenty of money. Does that sound like anybody you know? Right? You woke up this morning in Australia 
A nation with motor cars, paved roads, stores that prepackage food for you, clean water in your tap, machines that do washing, other machines that do drying, a world-class military that will protect you if somebody, if somebody tried to invade Australia. Hey, here's the thing. Australia said, hey, even if our military's not big enough, we're going to let America put military bases in Australia, and then those cats will show up with, with, with Britain and France and the United Nations. You live in a relatively safe place. We have so much money, more money than ever in the history of the world. We have so much money in Toowoomba that there are people in Toowoomba this week making a full-time wage massaging people. We have so much money that we can pay people $70 an hour to rub our shoulders because they feel tight. That is unbelievable affluence. There is somebody in in Toowoomba this week making a full-time wage permanently removing women's facial hair. That is amazing. My great grandmother didn't have that. You should have seen him. It was unbelievable, right? We live in the most affluent time. I bet 90% of this room in the last 30 days went to a restaurant where somebody prepared food for us. That is royal kind of things 400 years ago. Only kings got to do this. We're living a life of crisis now. We're living in a city where we're relatively safe under no fear of attack. And we have so much money, we can pay people to rub our shoulders. Now, the danger in that is getting complacent and feeling like we have no need for God, right? Now watch, watch what happens, right? This is what happened in history. In 546 BC, Cyrus the Persian attacked and plundered the city with a surprise attack. Here's how he did it. He sent spies to find a way into Sardis. And he told them, he said, don't bother coming back if you can't find a way. You'll die. So go find a way. I want the gold in that city, but they couldn't find a way. 1,500 meters high, cliffs, 40-foot wall. What do you do? The way the story goes is that one of the watchmen on the wall, the military guy, fell asleep. Now, can't you imagine how boring it would be watching the wall of Sardis that was further guarded by a 1,500-meter rock face? This guy falls asleep. And as the story goes, you know how your head sort of bobs when you fall asleep? His helmet came off of his head and tumbled down the mountain. Instead of going to the army barracks and admitting he fell asleep or making up a better story of how he lost his helmet, he decides to go down and fetch his helmet. Now, Croesus had built a secret passageway from the middle of the city inside the wall down the mountain. He had dug it out and come out in the valley that was supposed to be used for the military so they would have ease of coming and going. He uses this secret tunnel, goes down and fetches his helmet. The spies watch this and they follow him without him knowing it and he revealed to them the entrance to the secret passageway up the mountain. They go back and report this to Cyrus the Persian who sends his military and in the middle of the night while everyone was asleep thinking that they were safe, Cyrus the Persian's army came up through the middle of the city through that secret passageway and plundered everything these people owned in the middle of the night while they were asleep. Now, In 398 BC, so in other words, once everybody was dead that remembered that, in 398 BC, Antiochus the Great, a Greek warrior, performed the surprise attack through the same tunnel. And then in 334 BC, once everybody was dead from that one, 
Alexander the Great did the same thing. So the pattern in Sardis was getting complacent in their affluence and their safety and forgetting their need to protect themselves. And they kept being attacked from within because of complacency. This was the political history of Sardis. So politics was Domitian. Theology was, was Roma and Jupiter. And locally, the local goddess was a goddess named Kibla. Because you can't talk about political rule without also talking about religious rule. The religious rule of Sardis, Sardis was dominated by the religious rule of a goddess named Kibla. She was the daughter of Zeus and twin of Apollo. Kibla was also known in other places as Artemis or Diana. So when you read the Bible and it talks about Diana or Artemis, this is Kibla. Kibla, Artemis, Diana, they're the same exact goddess. And she ruled this region. She ruled the regions of Ephesus, Sardis, all of this stuff. Now, because, because it was such a fortified place, the Roman Empire stored all of their archives there as well. Now, let me paint a picture of what it would have been like to live in Sardis or Ephesus in the first century. Let me show you a picture of Kibla. Here's Kibla. Isn't she beautiful? She's, she's a very, uh, she's the goddess of fertility. Um, um, you can tell she's obviously very uh, sort of sexual. Uh, she's got like 20 sets of breasts, right? Right. Well, I mean, I mean, even when, look, even if they're 3,000 years old and made of stone, a woman with 20 breasts is just awesome. I don't know what else to <laughs> she, she, she was the goddess, so if you wanted to get pregnant... You would come to the temple of Kibla and you would offer an offering. Please open the wombs of, of my daughter or whatever. She, she was also the goddess of the hunt because she wasn't busy enough with fertility, right? So, so she was the goddess that if you were going to go out and hunt for food, remember there's no grocery store, no one was doing this for you. If you're going to go out and hunt for food, the men would come to the temple of Kibla and they would offer an offering to Kibla to ask her to trick the small animals into coming into their context so they could have food to eat. Here was the conflict. She was also the goddess of protecting small animals. Right? Right? And so, and so she was the goddess of all these things. She received worship through like open-aired uh, orgies and things like this. You know, it, it, and, you know and, and you thought Toowoomba was hard, right? Are you kidding me, right? Like Paul went and built a thriving church here, right? So somebody was saying to me the other day, boy, I'm worried about Australia. We're getting more and more and more godless. What are you talking, this, this, this is, it, this was something else. This was debauchery on a grand scale. Oh, you want to hear something cool, right? There's this one time, um, this is a historical story, where there was a famine, they couldn't find food. So people with all this money were, were going hungry because money doesn't buy food if you can't find the animals, right? So, so they couldn't find food, there was a bit of a famine. Now think about it, think about it, right? right? If you're a man in Sardis and you're going out day after day after day after day after day, week after week after week after week after week, and you're looking for food and you cannot find the food food, what would you think in a primitive superstitious thing? You would think, oh, the gods are upset with us. And in this case, which particular god? Kibla, right? So 
if you're a man and you're in charge of the hunting clan going out and you need to really, you need to really please Kibbola, once it got dire and people were starting to starve, they went to Kibbola. And as the history story goes, there was a, they, they, they got convinced that Kibbola was mad at the men and she didn't know if they were loyal, which led to this question. How does a group of men prove their loyalty to a female goddess? How do you do that? How does a man prove that I belong to you? Here's what they did. Craziness. Here's what they did. Thousands of them in a religious frenzy to honor Kibbola. Self-castrated, right? Right? I can't believe this was around. They self-castrated, right? I mean, how many, you're out, right? Like this isn't something we're going to engage in. They self-castrated and then they offered them on the offer to Kivala in a mass burnt offering to prove we belong to you. Now, please bring the animals into our sight so that we may eat. Thousands of men self-castrating and offering a burnt offering to Kivala. Oh, by the way, by the way. In 1918, archaeologists found the ancient temple of Kibbola and they found this altar. And today it's a tourist attraction. If you go and do what I'm tracing the steps of Paul, right? If you're going to do it that, right? You could find this altar today as a tourist attraction. So if you're ever in ancient Ephesus and Sardis and you find the altar to Kibbola, <laughs> don't sit on it, right? It's got, it, it's got history, right? Right? So this this is the kind of thing. Oh, by the way, by the way, you want to hear something cool, right? right? Paul built a thriving church there. And in Acts 19.37, he gets arrested. He gets arrested. And they bring him before the judge of Ephesus and Sardis. And if you remember the passage, what does it say? The judge says, what do you want me to do? This man has neither robbed our temple, nor has he spoken against our goddess one time. <sighs> Which leads me to this question. Could we do that? Maybe the better way to build and make Jesus Christ famous is not to build ministries around everything we're against and what we're not for, but rather to make Jesus famous. The idea, Paul had such a profound trust in the goodness of Jesus. He walks in and goes, I don't need to speak against this. The badness of this is speaking for itself. Let's present a replacement, a better way to live. Why was there, listen, listen, why was there such a revival in the first century? Why, why? Think about it. Paul shows up in a city like this and he's like, hey guys, hey, over here, over here. Hey, um, um, hello, um, Paul, uh, I serve a God and I'd like to invite you to serve him with me. Let me tell you about him. Um, he loves you just like you are. <laughs> he doesn't expect anything from you. You'll actually have infinitely more food to eat um, if you serve him because he doesn't require you to kill part of your animals uh, to make him happy. Um, oh, and, and he loves you and he doesn't expect anything from you. He just loves you because you're his creation and, and, and that is all. And oh, and by the way, he'll provide food for you just because he loves you and you get to keep all your bits intact. <laughs> Join us, right? People are like, I'm over there, right? This, this would have been something else, right? This was a crazy, crazy sort of place to live. And you, and you thought Australia was hard. Are you serious? This is, the, this is the best time ever to be alive. Like if we can't build a church here, 
where it's not illegal, <laughs> right? No one's going to die for their faith today in Australia. No one, no one, not in general. We're not sitting in here in fear of the armed armies that could come in and decimate us because of our faith, right? Right? Look, whatever the worst thing going on in Toowoomba last night was, whatever that was, it's nothing that Jesus couldn't walk right into without blushing and show love and show compassion. Yeah, Paul's like, hey, 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 Jesus is awesome, which is a much more compelling message than a 30-point bullet point thing on why kibble is bad. This is Sardis. So, so, so John says, hey, uh, to the church at Sardis, to the church, that, that is the geopolitical and religious history of Sardis as I know it in 17 minutes. <laughs> now let's see if that helps us understand what Jesus is getting to at the church at Sardis. Here, here's what he says. I know your deeds. You have a reputation for being alive, but you're actually dead. You could use the word dead or asleep. Wake up! Strengthen what remains and is about to die. For I have found your deeds unfinished in the sight of my God. Remember therefore what you have received and heard. Hold it fast and repent. But if you do not wake up, I will come like a thief and you will not know at what time I come to you. Remember, he's talking to people whose history included when they sleep without being aware, people attack them in the middle of the night like a thief. This is like, he's telling them their history again. He says, yet you have found a few people in Sardis who have not soiled their clothes. They will walk with me dressed in white for they are worthy. The one who is victorious will like them be dressed in white. I will never blot out the name of that person from the book of life, but will acknowledge that name before my father and his angels. Whoever has ears, let him hear what the spirit says to the church at Sardis. So you say, what does this mean for us? 2019, Toowoomba. My first thought is, is, is simply this. Can you see how Toowoomba is not exactly that much different than Sardis minus the forced castration, right? Like we're affluent, we're protected, we're safe. We have plenty, right? Right? We are like these people. And just like these people, our tendency is in our affluence and in our safety and in our security, we might bow to the temptation to become complacent in what God has called us to do and rest on the laurels of yesterday, right? I think we are the same as these people potentially. And if we don't stop and exactly examine our heart and go, wait a minute, have I become complacent in the middle of my affluence and in the middle of my security and all that have I subtly lost? my need and my dependence to profoundly trust God. And this is what Jesus is saying to us and to the church at Sardis. Number one, wake up. Wake up. What are you doing? Where are you resting on yesterday and becoming complacent? Like, is there any place, is there any place we've become complacent in, in, in our life? Just thinking, oh, we've got enough. We don't really have any needs. It's a dangerous place to be, to be complacent because it's in those moments that the enemy comes in like a thief and steals. We lose the things that are important to us. Where are we rationalizing something today that we'll regret tomorrow? Like, like we, we've told ourselves it's not that big of a deal. It's not that big of a deal. It's not that big of a deal. It's only this. It's a little bit of that. No, 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 it's not that bad. And we're rationalizing a one degree shift in our life today, which doesn't seem like a lot, but in two years, that's a completely different course. 
And we become complacent in checking our heart. We become, we become complacent in being accountable. We become complacent and we do things that aren't technically wrong at the time, but they're not wise. Right or wrong is not the best filter for decision making. Because there's a lot of things that aren't wrong, but they're not wise, right? They're not wise. Right and wrong is a horrible filter because you could easily rationalize, well, that's not technically wrong. That's not technically a sin. That's not technically this. But the bigger, more profound question is, is this wise and does it violate my clean heart of peace? Is it that? And we can become complacent in that. And Jesus would be saying to us, wake up, wake up. Where's darkness overtaking us? And we don't even realize it. Where, or, or more, where is the voices of the infinite possibilities that God has for our life? Where have it, where's it gotten dull? Like all of, all of us, when you started your walk with God, that moment you surrendered your life to God, right? That moment, at that moment, you literally thought there are infinite possibilities for what we could do partnering with the spirit of the risen Christ in our world. There are infinite, and you get excited and you get moved and you, you, you think you could, you, you think you could do anything. But then uh, over time, what happens is, is that the voices of the infinite possibilities can dumb down because of discouragement, right? And, and Jesus is saying, no, 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 wake up, get back there are still infinite possibilities for your life. Get back, wake up. What are you doing? What are you doing? Number two, he says, your deeds are not yet finished. In other words, God is not through with you. What you did yesterday was great, but it's time to dream again. It's time to act again. What this church, I've been, I've been coming here for eight years. I remember, I remember when you guys did church in a racquetball court, right? And I come in here today and I think, how did they ever do that? But they did it. But they did it. And then God moves you on and gives you big stuff. Big. He entrusts you with big pieces of land. Big moments. Big things like this. And and the tendency in that is to go, all right, we did it. All right. Hey, we did it. And there's there's a tension between celebrating what God has done and then resting on that and losing our dream for the still infinite possibilities for our future. And that tension, when we don't navigate that well, we can become irrelevant and lack of energy pretty quickly, right? right? So, so Jesus is saying, hey, wake up. What are you doing? What are you doing? There, there, there are people who will steal from you if you're not alert. Wake up. Wake up. Remember, what are you doing? What are you doing? God's not done with you yet. And I want to speak straight into, into some people who, who came in here today and you're, you're thinking in your heart, you know what, I, 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 think, I, I think I'm done. I think God's done with me. I think I'm done. I would say to you, no. Hear this as a prophetic sort of word. Find yourself in this, that there is more to your life than what you have already accomplished. God is not done with you yet. But I'm 70. Right, right. But are you still breathing air? And like 70 is the new 50. Medical technology is keeping us alive really long time now. Like you got a lot of living yet ahead of you. And the last thing you want is to just sit back and have your whole faith be dumbed down to, well, I'm just sitting around waiting to go to heaven when I die. That's boring. Now, if you're 107, it's okay. Like you can wait to go to heaven when you die. It's like right there. But, but 70, come on. God's not done with you yet. And I would even say, I would even say something even more uh, profound than that. I would say, if you're 70, we need you. We need that wisdom of your life. Be speaking into things. Don't just sit back waiting to go something. Wake up. Your deeds are not yet finished. Third one, he says, remember and hold it fast. Very important. I love, it's a common theme in scripture. Remember, this do in remembrance of me. 
He, t- he, tells, he tells the Jews, remember, remember. It's very, it's very important that we never forget what God has accomplished with us already. Or we could run the risk of letting discouragement allow us to forget that God has already done the impossible once. What would stop him from surprising us with more infinite possibilities tomorrow? He says, remember. But then he says, hold it fast. This is a great ancient rabbinical way of how to build your life. Here's what, here's what the ancient rabbi said. They said, a fleeting imagination will do nothing to hurt you nor help you. So even if an imagination is destructive, if it doesn't stay around a long time, it's pretty ineffective, right? But a disciplined imagination, be it positive or negative, will force your reality at some point to be drawn to it. It's, it's what you see. In other words, what you see is what you get. But I would say it this way, what you see repetitively and you can hold is what you get. A, a fleeting imagination is not going to help you, n- nor hurt you. I, I was, this was years ago now, I was in Dalby, and uh, flipping legend pastors the church out there. He's an amazing guy. And we, we were at this restaurant, and I was sitting here, and he was sitting there. He was facing me, and he never saw this. But behind him, this woman came into the restaurant we were sitting in, and she was largely naked. Now, I'm positive it was illegal. She, she was wearing, she wasn't technically naked. She was wearing like a nightie that you could easily see through, and flip-flops or thongs and nothing else. And, and, and I think my literal thought was, that's a butt, Right? You can't help but notice that, right? And here's what the rabbis would say. They would say, hey, if that thought comes and goes, it won't hurt you, nor will help you. But if I discipline my imagination to objectify her and it creates a lust, now my reality will start drawing to that disciplined imagination. Now, if you'd have seen or you'd have understood, there is no trouble there. But, but this is also why We get frustrated with people who have a new vision every week. Hey, God's going to do great things. There's a new season ahead. Big things are coming. Breakthrough. Right? Right? And then the next week, they're on to some other big thing like that. And then the next week, and nothing ever actually happens. It's because we don't hold it fast. When God gives you a vision, you hold it fast. You discipline your imagination until you see that thing come to fruition. So wake up. Your deeds are not finished. Remember and hold it fast. Number four, repent. Repent. Now, in Western Christianity, repentance has become a shame-based thing. I did something bad, I need to repent. Okay, but it's bigger than that. Repentance, we actually would do better to remove repentance from any shame-based activity and just realize that repentance is a lifestyle that we need to be engaging in all the time. Repentance literally means to change your mind and turn around. Change your mind and change course. So, so in other words, in other words, you read a book and that book gives you a thought you haven't considered before and it changes the way you think just a little bit. That's repentance. And that's necessary for growth. Like if if the you of 10 years ago looked at the you of today and saw no change, what, how tragic would that be? Repentance is the, is the technology that allows growth to be necessary. And Jesus says, hey, where do you need to change the way you're thinking about stuff? Hey, hey, church at Sardis, you're living in affluence. 
underneath a value system that says we should be standing up for the marginalized. How hard would it have been in Sardis to actually live according to the values of Jesus when you were surrounded by affluent debauchery? It would have been very difficult. Very difficult. And Jesus says, hey, let me remind you. Hey, continually change the way you think and return to that vision. Return to that moment. Return to those things. Continually do that as a lifestyle. Number five. Be encouraged by each other. He says, wake up. Your deeds are not finished. Hold it fast. Repent. Simply return to your dream and be encouraged by each other. One of the things that, that shouldn't go missing in this text is, is, the, is the two verses where he says, hey, look around. There's lots of people who haven't sold their clothes. There's lots of people. Could you imagine being a Christian in Sardis? There's the temple of Kibbeleh. There's open air debauchery going on on a weekly basis that is unlike anything the Western world at this time has ever seen. Could you imagine the temptation to just give all that up and live under the authority of the empire because it's going to make you rich and affluent? Could you imagine that? And if you're trying, if you're the one person in Sardis who's trying to be faithful and true and live this way, could you imagine, how easy would it be to one day get so discouraged thinking you're alone? I'm alone in this. I'm alone in this. It's, it's, it's true. The, the, the psychological uh, um, framework of this is to, is to, is to generalize the particular. The, the idea that something particular happens and then we think everybody else is in on it, right? So, so as a teacher, occasionally some people don't like me. Occasionally. It's not that big of a thing, but occasionally it happens. And there's one thing. You could have 900 people go, hey, that was awesome. And one person goes, eh, not so good. And you go to bed thinking, well, n- n- nothing matters, right? It's very easy to generalize or globalize the negative experience of one particular thing. Very easy to do that. So you're living at Sardis. And the temptation is to globalize the particular thing. And you start thinking, I'm by myself. I'm by myself. And I, I, I think we'd be remiss to miss this. That there, this is the danger of a church this good. Here's the danger, right? There's a way that you could come in here, fully participate in the atmosphere that was happening, actually go out and get coffee and talk to people and leave feeling lonelier than ever before. There's a way that in our imagination, we could participate in something this vibrant and this life-giving and leave profoundly disconnected. We're going through something and we think no one understands. We're going through something and we think they won't won't get it. They'll judge me. And if there's ever a place that's not the truth, it's here. And here's my challenge. Here's my challenge is to wake up. Wake up. Your deeds are not yet finished. Return. Remember. Hold it fast and repent. But also look around you and be encouraged by each other. There's lots of people in Toowoomba who haven't sold their clothes. There's lots of people in Toowoomba who are living according to the values of the risen Christ. There's lots of people in Toowoomba that will stand up for the down and outer. There's lots of people in Toowoomba who will stand with you if you're going through something traumatic. There's lots of people We are in this together and we are not alone. Nothing is more disheartening than loneliness. I'll kill you. Watch watch this. This is um, the first thing in the whole Bible that God called not good is loneliness. It's the first thing in the whole Bible. It's It's good, it's good, it's good, it's good, it's good. That's not good. It was loneliness. Watch this. This is an experience of of a prophet. He says, he replied, 
I've been very zealous for the Lord God Almighty. In other words, I'm in this with all my heart. The Israelites have rejected your covenant, torn down your altars, and put your prophets to death with the sword. I'm the only one left. And now they're trying to kill me. Loneliness. Watch what God says to him four verses later. Yet I reserve 7,000 in Israel, all whose knees have not bowed to Baal and whose mouths have not kissed him. In other words, Elijah, you might feel alone, but you're not. Look around. There's a lot of people who haven't sold their clothes. We're in this thing together. Hey, this next vision, this next season for New Hope, this next thing. Hey, you're not alone. You're, there's a lot of people doing this with you. A lot of people doing this with you. And here's what I'm going to ask you to do today. Is in the foyer time and in all that. I would ask you to be brave enough to walk up to somebody that you know well enough to do this. And just give them a word of encouragement. Just give them a word of encouragement. Don't, it, it doesn't need to be spiritual. It doesn't need to be prophetic in King James English. Just... Just, just walk up and it might be something as simple as I want you to know that I think you're a good mom and you're not alone. You're not alone because that, that there's something about that that just connects us at a profound level. Like just to illustrate this out, Chris and Sue, you inspire me. I've told literally someone on every continent in the world except South America because I've never been there about how you guys do things here and what kind of people you are. And you need to know that what you do matters. It is never wasted. And there are lots of people who haven't sold their clothes standing with you, including me. And you are not alone ever because I'm in your life. I'm in your life. I'm only a flight away. Well, I'm a six-hour flight followed by a 13-hour flight followed by a two-hour drive. So in that sense, you're alone for one day. But you're not alone. I bless you, my brothers and sisters, to not just be people on your way to heaven when you die. Be people who wake up. Realize your deeds are not finished. If there's complacency issues, get off your butt and do something about it. Talk to one of the pastors here about the infinite possibilities for us to get involved and partner with the risen Christ with the infinite possibilities to change our world. I can't wait to see what would happen. Could you imagine a church that actually took that on? Could you imagine a community that actually took that on? Everybody doing their part. Everybody doing their part. Let me pray for you. Lord, we love you. We honor you. We proclaim your king and there's none like you. Lord, I ask that this place would be a dwelling place for your name, the compassionate, gracious, slow to anger, abounding in love and forgiveness, God. May this place be the place of justice, righteousness, discipleship, movement. May we realize there's a lot of people who haven't sold their clothes. My biggest prayer for you today is simply this. Lord Jesus, let the voices of the infinite possibilities come alive again in us. Cancel the urgent treble in our life and restore us to the rhythm note that allows for us to connect to the infinite possibilities God has for us. In Jesus' name.